0: Uh, We thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is trustworthy and reliable, that it gives us a certain and sure foundation for every part of our life. It teaches us how to know You, how to follow Your will, and to walk according to Your ways. Uh, It teaches us who Jesus is and how to be filled with the Holy Spirit that we might live in a way that pleases You. Uh, Father, all these and many other things are the treasures of your Word. And Father, I pray that as we dig into the treasure pile here today, that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit, through your Word, and that you would cause us uh, to be excited not only about what the Word says, but about putting it into practice. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, you'll remember if you've been here before, but I'll introduce it if you haven't, we're going through this study called The Greatest Story Ever Told, where we are going through the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, in 15 weeks. Okay? The entire thing, 15 weeks, which means we're skipping a lot and condensing a bunch, but nevertheless, uh, we're going to cover the entire... Scope of the story and see how every part of it connects to Jesus, and also in the process of that, uh, try to learn how to know and follow and obey and become more like Jesus along the way. So we're at uh, we're at week number five, which puts us at Jacob and his sons. Now this is the last part of Genesis. Okay, so you're like you have spent. You're going to spend 15 weeks. You spent five of them in Genesis. That's true. Don't apologize for that because Genesis sets the store, sets the the course of the whole rest of the story of the rest of the Bible. And what you're going to see is how God gave a God created a universe that was perfect and put humanity in perfect environment, created them perfectly. How they fell into sin. And how then God made a promise of one who was to come who would deal with sin and reverse its effects in the rest of human history. And the story of the Bible is how that person came into history. By the way, not to spoil it for anybody, but that person's named Jesus, okay? He's a big deal in your Bible. And... (laughs) and He is in fact the main character of your Bible. And as you move through, you're looking for the coming of this One who is going to deal with sin and take humanity back to uh, even better than the Garden of Eden at the the end. Okay? So that's the big story that we're going through. But we need to see how it unfolds uh, through the rest of the Bible. So, where we are today, um, we are at Genesis chapter 37 to 50. Okay? Now, you remember we left off uh, in Genesis uh, chapter 22. So we have skipped a big chunk. We're going to be skipping big chunks from here on out. But Genesis 37 to 50 deals with Jacob and his 12 sons and his one daughter Dinah. Uh, and if you don't know who Jacob is, let me back up and give you a little background. Uh you remember last week we talked about Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac when he was a very old man. He was a hundred. His wife was ninety. It was a miracle baby, and they had this son named Isaac. Isaac had two twin boys. The older one was named Esau. Okay, uh, Esau came out of the womb all covered with hair, and uh, that was that was uh, apparently bright red. And so they called him Esau, or they also called him Edom, which means red, okay? Like you're from Missouri. You met some guy named Red down there. Uh, That's Esau, okay? Esau was the hunter and the guy um, who was the outdoorsman. Jacob was the opposite. He was the great indoorsman. He was kind of a mama's boy. Uh, But Jacob um, is the guy who God chose to carry on the promise of the Messiah who was was going to come. The blessing to all nations, God said, was going to come through uh, Abraham and then through Isaac and now through Jacob. But despite Jacob's godly heritage of Abraham and Isaac, his father and grandfather, Jacob did not begin his life as a man of faith. In fact, He tried to lie and cheat and steal his way to getting his own blessing for himself for most of his life. Jacob doesn't really put his faith in God as you read the story until he is nearly 80. He's Nearly 80 when he finally comes to believe in God and it's after an all-night wrestling match with God. Uh, In fact... He leaves that wrestling match uh, with three things. He gets a new name, Israel, which means he wrestles with God. And he did. For his whole life, Jacob wrestled with God and, tr- and was and struggled to obey what God had called him to do. Uh, his encounter with God also left him with a brand new faith. After this, he builds an altar and he calls it El Elohei Israel, God the God of Israel. And for the first time in his life, God is his God. And he's acknowledging that fact. And also, he has a permanent limp uh, because after the wrestling match, God reaches out and just touches him and his hip is dislocated. And so he has a permanent limp for the rest of his life to remind him that you can't wrestle with God. He's a lot stronger. His arms are longer. Uh, (laughs) And... And he is a lot more powerful than you. And you're not going to overcome God and his plan and purpose for your life. Now, tragically with Jacob, his, his lifetime of conniving and scheming up to this point has left him with some, some effects that are not going to be undone. Uh, He's now called Israel, but he has ruined his relationships with nearly everyone in both his immediate and extended family. He has also got two wives. Uh, By the way, not everything in Scripture is there for your example to imitate. Amen? Uh, This is one of those. Don't imitate this. Jacob is an unbeliever up to this point. That's why he has two wives and... Also two more concubines, women who are not quite wives, but nevertheless bore him children. Uh, and so he has, tw- he, has, he has four women that have borne him children. Uh, and those children totaled now 12 sons and one daughter. And it is a messy, painful story. And I'm not going to tell all the details. Um, but the relevant part for our purposes is that Israel lived like an unbeliever Uh, because he was an unbeliever for a very long time. And because of that, most of his sons became just like their dad. And on top of that, of his wives and his concubines that he had, these four women, Rachel, uh, the younger sister of, by the way, he married two sisters, also not a great idea, uh, and something forbidden in Scripture to do. Uh, But he did it, and the only one he actually liked of these four women was the woman named Rachel. And she had two sons, but the firstborn was the one that Jacob thought was the greatest. The firstborn son of Rachel, the woman he loved, was a man named Joseph. And Israel gave to Joseph all of the rights of the firstborn because he is the firstborn of the woman he loved. Now, he was also the youngest of the sons at that point. Benjamin hadn't yet been born. But he is the youngest of all the boys. And dad says, he is my firstborn. All the rest of you essentially don't count. Even though he's the youngest. And his dad gave him, to signify his rank within the family, this richly ornamented robe that he walks around in. To show I am the I am the designated firstborn. I am second in command under dad in this family. Now Joseph's brothers all resented him over that, which you can imagine. Right? But the final straw came when Joseph told the whole family, hey, I've had dreams from God. In my dream, God told me that one day I'm going to rule over mom and dad and all my brothers. And at that point, his brothers hate him. Resentment just festered right over into hatred at that moment. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. Uh, in Genesis chapter 37, if you got your Bible, I want to read it to you. And you'll read this and you'll think, This is in your Bible? Yes, it is. Okay. Uh, Some of the portions of your Bible uh, are R-rated. And they appear. um, They were a modern day soap opera. You'd go, that is sensational. We can't watch that. But this is what happens here in your Bible. Beginning in verse 18. If you'd stand with me if you're able. Genesis chapter 37 beginning in verse 18. This is what the Word of God says. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let's not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And then they sat down to eat. And then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Let's pray. Father, again we come to you having read a portion of your word that is frankly hard to imagine how the people chosen by God could do this kind of a thing. And yet, Father, we recognize that we are people who are prone to sin and evil just as they were. And we pray that we might see not only the redemption of this, but also the redemption of us from our sin uh, as it comes through this story. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, uh, if you look at my at the outline on the back of your bulletin, what you can see is... Um, you can obviously that that Joseph is indeed the brother that all of his brothers hated. Right? Uh, you don't sell your brother into slavery as the consolation prize for having decided not to murder him because you <laughs> love him so much, right? Uh, you might not see God's grace yet. But here's what but that's coming. So hang with me, okay? But here's what happens in this story as it unfolds. They sell Joseph into slavery, and then Joseph's brothers take this robe that he has, and they rip it up, and they dip it into the blood of a goat that they've killed. And they do that, and then they come to their father, uh, Jacob, and they say, uh, You know, hey, we found this robe out in the wilderness, and it's covered in blood. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what's happened to Joseph, but it looks like his coat. And, and the idea is, is that they're presenting it like we don't know what's happened to Joseph, but here's his coat covered in blood. He must have got eaten by a lion or something. Right? So that's not only a lie, it's outright deception and trickery to convince Jacob that Joseph is dead. Right? Now you might be shocked by this kind of outright lie, but by this point in in Genesis, it's really hardly shocking. Uh, without telling all of the sordid history of Joseph's brothers, let's just let me just say this: that Joseph's brothers have already behaved just like the idol-worshipping, unbelieving Canaanites that they're all surrounded by. But God is not done with these brothers, and He's also not done with Joseph. When these Ishmaelite traders get down to Egypt, they sell Joseph into the house of one of the high officials of Pharaoh, a man named Potiphar, who is the captain of the king's guard. Uh, And Joseph, while he's there, is a faithful servant to Potiphar, and God blessed Potiphar's house abundantly because Joseph was in it. He said, and, and pretty soon, like, Potiphar is like, Man, everything I have is blessed because you're here. I'm just going to give you more and more stuff to manage because everything that you do just turns out amazing. Despite being a slave, things are going pretty well for Joseph. Right up to the point where Potiphar's wife takes an interest in Joseph. She sees him, takes notice of him recognizes that he's an attractive man, and she is a lonely girl. And she starts running around the house essentially saying to Joseph, "Uh, come be with me. And Joseph says no. Repeatedly. Day after day after day. And you should not imagine this this is a little old lady with a walker. This is not the castle crone going around here. This is an attractive woman. The wife of a high official. And and so it's an obvious temptation for Joseph. But Joseph says, no, 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 no. I told you, no. Until one day, they're all alone in the house. And she catches hold of him. And says... I mean it right now. And he, out of a desire to get away from her as fast as he can, leaves his, his shirt, his outer garment, his robe in her hand. And you would think that would be the end of that. But what she does is keeps that robe in her hand And goes to her husband when he came coming home that night and says, This slave of yours tried to assault me, and I screamed and he left his coat with me. Is that the truth? It's not even in the same neighborhood as the truth. But Joseph is put in prison, and he stays there for a long time. But even in prison, God is with Joseph. Pretty soon, the warden begins to notice that Joseph is a responsible fellow. And he puts Joseph in charge of the entire prison and all the other prisoners except for him. One point, Pharaoh, uh, in this time when Joseph's in prison, Pharaoh himself sends two of his officials to be in prison with Joseph. One of them is a baker one of them is his cupbearer. And both of these men have dreams while they're there in prison. And Joseph correctly interprets their dreams. He tells the baker, look, in three days, you're going to be executed. And he tells the cupbearer, in three days, you're going to be restored to your position. And that happens. And and Joseph tells the cupbearer, hey, when you get out of here in three days, remember me. You think the cupbearer remembered him? No. He proceeded to forget about him for two more years. Remember, Joseph is in prison as an innocent man all this time. But after two years, Pharaoh has a dream. And he can't interpret it. And he asks all of his officials, do you guys know anybody that can interpret dreams? And the cupbearer says, "Uh, I think I might. And there was a guy in prison who told me what would happen to me. Remember when you put me and the baker in prison? Yeah, well, what Joseph said was going to happen, happened. And so you should go get Joseph. So they go get Joseph out of prison take his prison clothes off of him, give him a shave, get him ready, to go stand in front of Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him his dreams and Joseph interprets them accurately. And Joseph says, look, here's what's happened. You've had two dreams and what God is telling you is that you're going to have seven years of great prosperity followed by seven years of famine. And what you need to do To prepare for the seven years of famine, which are going to be so severe that the years of prosperity are going to be forgotten, is you need to take 20% of everything that comes in in the years of prosperity and put them in storage for the years of famine so that we'll have food to eat. And Pharaoh looks at this young man and he says, you know, there's nobody in all my kingdom as wise and as insightful as you, so I'm going to put you in charge of all this. And he makes Joseph uh, second only to himself in all of Egypt. So he's gone from a slave to an inmate, prime minister, within just a period of a few years. It's an amazing transformation. But the famine... Comes eventually. Seven years of prosperity come, just like Joseph said they would, just like God had, had foretold the Pharaoh, and the seven years of famine come after that. After the first year of famine, Joseph's family over in Canaan is out of food. And so along they come, his brothers. Israel sent his ten oldest sons except for he didn't send Benjamin uh, but he sent the ten older sons down to Egypt to buy food and when they come Joseph immediately recognizes his brothers. They did not recognize him because after all why would they? Last time they saw him he was headed on a slaver caravan down to Egypt where presumably they figured he probably died and they're not expecting the guy uh, with a shaved head and a headdress to be their long-lost brother. Right? And they're certainly not expecting their brother to become prime minister, uh, you know, basically vice-regent of the whole nation of Egypt at that time the world's superpower. They don't expect that. But because they don't recognize him yet, Joseph decides to put his brothers to the test to see if they have repented of their evil against Him. And so He accuses them of spying. He says, I know that you are all spies. You've come here to spy out the land, uh, and, and I'm not going to let you leave. And they say, well, no, we're not spies. We promise, we promise. Well, the only way I'll let you leave is if one of you stays here and you bring your youngest brother that you've told me that you have back here. The youngest brother is Benjamin, who is Joseph's full brother, the only other son of Rachel and his father Jacob. The one whom Jacob loves more than all of the rest of them because she, he is the only other son of the only woman Jacob ever loved, Rachel. Go get that boy and bring him back you leave one of your brothers here. Well, realizing they're either, they've are either they either got to do what the, the king says, essentially, um, or starve to death, they agree, they leave Simeon behind in prison. And then they take their grain and when they stop for the night, they find not only their sacks full of grain, but also in the top of all of their sacks all the silver they used pay for the grain that they bought. So now they think, oh my gosh, we're in real trouble. I'm sure that guy not only thinks that we're spies, now he thinks we're thieves. Because we still have all of our silver. Well, what are we going to do? we we got to go home. Dad will starve along with all of our wives if we don't get home with the grain. And they are overwhelmed at that moment with guilt. They think this is God's recompense for what we did to our brother all those years ago. They repent of their sin. But they don't tell the truth to dad just yet of what they've done. When they get back to the land, old man Israel is highly upset. What do you mean? You had to leave one of your brothers there and the only way we can get more food is to take Benjamin with you. What are you doing? But eventually, because the famine, remember, is going to go seven years, after another year they're out of food. And so even though the famine is ongoing, they just have no other choice. So Israel lets them take Benjamin after Judah, the traitor, the one whose idea it was to sell Joseph into slavery, volunteers to personally bear the penalty for whatever happens to Benjamin. They are allowed to then go back for more grain. Now, skipping ahead in the story a lot, this is what happens Simeon, the brother who was in prison, gets released, and Joseph reveals who he is. And the family is reunited. They cannot believe what has happened to Joseph. I mean, would you? This is a crazy story. The brother we sold into slavery has become prime minister over all Egypt. And he's the guy we've been meeting with? Pharaoh is so excited to meet Joseph's family He gives Joseph the best part of the land of Egypt for his family to live in. And since it's ideal for raising sheep, but the Egyptians hate shepherds, Joseph's family is all isolated into the best part of the land, the ideal part for raising sheep, but they don't intermix in any way with the Egyptians. And so God took them out of that pagan Canaanite culture that they're slowly intermarrying with and intermixing with, and put them in a place where the people of the land would have nothing to do with them, so that they. But also so that they would prosper there. If you're raising livestock, the place where there's lots of grass is exactly where you'd like to be, and that's where they are. And so God rescues His people from being assimilated into an idolatrous culture. He protects them from being assimilated into idolatrous Egypt, even as He he ensured that they prospered and grew into a nation. Joseph forgives his brothers all the evil that they did. And reconciliation between them all comes at last. And it's a picture of God's grace Because the undeserving received forgiveness and reconciliation and a new life that they definitely did not deserve. Amen? Now, how this family got out of Egypt and became a nation is our story for next week. But for now, what we need to see is that God saved Israel's sinful sons through a means they could have never imagined. The life of a brother that they hated, but who loved them. Now let me tell you a story in a slightly different way. There was once a father who had a beloved son, to whom he had given glory and honor and all of the inheritance rights that belonged to him. This beloved son was prophesied as the one who would one day rule over all his brothers and to whom they would all bow their knees. But when He came to His brothers, they did not recognize Him or His authority. They stripped Him of His robe. They threw Him into a pit, though He was innocent of any crime. He was betrayed by Judah. Or if you write it in Greek, Judas. He was sold for pieces of silver for the price of a slave, and handed over to the Gentiles. He suffered unjustly, but then came to rule over the whole world with all his brothers bowing down to him just as it was prophesied long before. From him they received the bread that gives life, and to them he gave new life in a new land where they could live in prosperity under his protection and blessing, purified of their sin, forgiven, and reconciled to the one that they hated. Who am I talking about? Well, Joseph, obviously. But also Jesus. Amen? The parallels are striking, to say the least. You know that Joseph is one of only a couple of people in the entire Bible of whom no sins are ever mentioned? I think that's interesting. This is Joseph's story, and it's about how Israel and his family wound up in Egypt, uh, and how that all worked itself out, and how God fulfilled his plan, but it's also a story of how God uses the person whom all the rest of Israel rejected to save them all. And in that sense, Jesus is the true son of Israel. He is the better version of Joseph. He is the real thing of which Joseph is the shadow. Right? And to underline that for us, I want to show you one more passage of Scripture and it's in your New Testament in the book of Romans. Okay? Um, So if you find the New Testament, you're going to go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then the next book you come to is Romans, and this is chapter 5. Okay. Romans is a fantastic book of Scripture. Romans 5 is a fantastic chapter. I just want to show you a few verses. This is um, beginning in verse 8. This is what God's Word says. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm not going to attempt to preach all of those verses. There's a whole sermon by itself in just those four verses, okay? But here's the big point the Word of God is making here that God loved us, God loved you and me when we were still His enemies. Not like His, you know, former friends or anything like that, His enemies. The people who hated Him. The people who wanted nothing to do with Him. The people who were doing everything they could to rebel against His Word. God loved us then. When you were God's enemy, running away from Him, He loved you. When you were His enemy, He loved you. He sent His only begotten Son to die in your place and my place for our sins to make peace with us who were His enemies. And since that's true, how much better relationship with God can we expect to have now that we aren't His enemies anymore, but His adopted sons? That's what this passage is about. That's what the Bible means by salvation by grace. When you hear about that, what's salvation by grace? Salvation means God loved people who didn't deserve it and sent His Son to die on a cross for them and be raised to new life To give them new life. What did Joseph's brothers deserve? To die of starvation back in the land. That's what they deserved. Right? What did Joseph give them? A new life and sustaining by the bread of life that he had in his hands. Right? He gave them a new place to live. He gave them forgiveness. He gave them reconciliation. And what the Bible means by salvation by grace is that we now live in peace with the One who was our enemy. The One that we hated. The One that we rebelled against. Whose authority we rejected. Because God the Father loved us. Our brother Jesus died for our sins and rose again to rule and authority and made peace with us and with God as a result. And that leads to my conclusion now. How do we think about this story and how it relates to us? First question I want to ask you is, where are you in the story? Because Joseph's brothers are in two different conditions depending on where they are in the story. Are you still like one of Joseph's brothers at the beginning? Before they recognized him in Egypt. Are you still living your life in sin? Are you still rejecting the authority of the one God sent to save you and rule over you and give you a new life? Or are you like one of the brothers at the inn when they're forgiven and reconciled and living under the blessing of the one they formerly rejected? If you haven't yet bowed your knee to Jesus Christ as the Savior who died for your sins and was raised from the dead, today is the day to do that. Don't continue to reject the one whom God sent to save you from sin and death. The moment that you put your faith in Jesus, you can receive reconciliation with God, new life, and all of God's blessings. But you must do that. You must come before Him and put your faith in Him to receive forgiveness. There isn't another way. You can leave your old life behind and you can get a new one today. Second question. Who are you going to tell about Jesus? Who are you going to tell about Jesus? There's a tremendous amount. As you look around You know, suicide is at an all-time high in the United States of America. Opioid overdoses are up every year over the last several years. People are dying of fentanyl uh, ingestion, right? Why are people doing that, by the way? Is it because they're just stupid and they, they take drugs because they don't know any better? No. What they're doing is medicating pain. They might be doing it in a foolish way, but nobody who smokes dope or snorts cocaine or shoots up heroin or gets addicted to Oxycontin or whatever else is doing so because their life is awesome and they can't wait to continue and they love waking up every morning with all of the joy that they have. Right? There is a lot of loneliness and despair and pain out there. A lot of it. And a lot of people live life like one of the more R-rated parts of Genesis and more like Joseph's brothers than like Joseph. And they need to hear the good news. And they don't know the difference between the life they have and the life you have if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. So they need the hope that we have. Amen? They need a reason to get up out of bed in the morning. Better than the alarm went off. They need a reason. And we have one. In fact, we have the very best reason of all that Jesus has given us new life. Amen? And they need to hear it. So who are you going to tell? Last question. Now I'm going to go straight to medelin. Alright? Is there anybody in your life with whom you need to make peace? Joseph's brothers, can you imagine this? Can you imagine somebody throwing you in a hole, standing next to it and discussing whether or not to murder you? And then deciding, no, we don't want to murder you. We want to just make some money in this deal, so we're just going to sell you into slavery instead. Did Joseph have a lot to forgive? I think that is a safe statement. Amen? I've had a lot of people who haven't liked me over the course of my life, but none of them have ever thought about murdering me and made a plan for it. And... (laughs) At least as far as I know. And definitely none of them ever sold me into slavery. Right? Joseph had a lot to forgive. Yet God called him to forgive. And this is what, in fact, Joseph says at the end of the story. Joseph's brothers can't even believe that he's forgiven them and made peace with them after all these years. And so after Jacob finally dies, they're afraid that Joseph has been waiting for Jacob's death to finally get even with them all. And they're like, is everything okay? And this is what Joseph says. What you meant for evil, God meant for good and the saving of many lives. Did he see their evil as good? No. In fact, he names it evil. He labels their intentions evil. But he saw God's purpose. And he knew how much God had used him despite their sin against him. And he also, I think, must have known that God had forgiven him of many things too. So having been reconciled with God, Joseph toward chose forgiveness toward his brothers. And that's our calling too. Amen? We who have been reconciled to God also reconcile with one another. So, is there anybody you need to forgive? Anybody who has hurt you deeply that right now as I'm speaking, you are hearing the Spirit's prompting? That's the person. If there is, today is the day to go and be reconciled. Forgive just as you have been forgiven. Amen? On that note, let's pray. Because we're going to need Jesus' help on all of that. Okay? God our Father, we are people who are recipients of great grace. You have lavished Your grace on us. Your grace to us, we don't even know how much You poured over us. We just know that it overflows bigger than our cup. And Father, I pray that we who have been forgiven very much would also love very much. That we would love lost people enough to tell them about the forgiveness we have received and where to find it. That we would, like uh, poor beggars who have been invited to an unlimited banquet, tell the other beggars where to find the bread. And also, Father, that we who have been forgiven much would also forgive much. Father, there's a lot of pain out there in this room. Lots of people who have been hurt, been sinned against, who have every reason to bear a grudge. But Father, we were your enemies and you bear no grudge against us. That sent your Son to die for us. And so, Father, I pray that we would be people of reconciliation, people who make peace, even with those who have hurt us deeply. And, Father, we will need your help by your Holy Spirit to do any of this. Father, I pray that you will help us. In Jesus' name, amen.